Here's what's coming up on today's show. So I think it's important, regardless of the interest rate regime or the headlines, it's kind of a similar story that you want to put together an investment strategy that contemplates all those different risks. This is the Retire Happy Podcast with John Amarino, a fiduciary financial advisor at Securus Financial in the San Diego area. And Thomas O'Connell, president of International Financial Advisory Group, Inc. in Parsippany, New Jersey. Together, they'll be keeping retirement happy from coast to coast. Welcome back to another episode of the Retire Happy Podcast. I'm your host on the West Coast, John I. Marino, and I am joined by my esteemed co-host and great friend, Tom O'Connell on the East Coast. Tommy, how you doing, buddy? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, it's been a been a few weeks since we've last chatted, and I hope you, you and your family had a great holiday and all our listeners as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a great Christmas, great New Year's, and uh, I'm the only survivor of the uh, flu, so didn't get hit with the flu, but everywhere we've been, it's been killing us. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. So that means a lot, Tom. <laughs> so folks, 2024, a new year and uh, more new market predictions, right, Tom? You can hear them everywhere from this is going to be a, a boom year because it's a presidential election cycle to uh, the foremost naysayer, Harry Dent, saying crash of lifetime. So as we do with every year, we're starting January with one of two Brookstone superstars, the chief investment officer and the smartest and funniest guy, because he's going to probably smile at that, the funniest guy in the room, Mark Diorio. And uh, Mark has been the chief investment officer at uh, Brookstone for better half of a decade and is uh, just a brilliant mind. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, the Chief Investment Officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark Diorio. And introducing the Chief Investment Officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark Diorio. Well, thanks, guys. That's quite an introduction, and I appreciate being able to join the hottest podcast in investment management sweeping the nation. So this is great. I appreciate it. Well, we're well, glad to have you. Warm if you are the funniest guy in the room, though, Mark. Come on. <laughs> and who said, so, uh, who said economists don't have a sense of humor? Come on now. <laughs> well, after the last few years, you really have to have one. <laughs> <laughs> so... Mark, it's 2024, and as we uh, always do, we uh, bring you out here to give your car, put your Karnak hat on, the old Johnny Carson, and give your market guru predictions. So, you know, 2024, it's a presidential year. A lot of people are still concerned about recessions. You have uh, the Harry Dents of the world saying a crash of a lifetime. We have interest rates. We have World War III on the brink all the fear-mongering that's going on. Um, so what say you? I would say that that is one of the greatest challenges for investors in 2024, which is very heavy headline-driven, emotional-driven um, type of marketplace. 
but I would have to separate those headlines and those emotions from an investment strategy and how the market performs. Oftentimes they are disconnected and sometimes the market will rally, even when you think things aren't as good as they are or could be, some things are dour. And I think a, a good reflection of that is uh, at the end of 2022, most of the prognostications and the predictions coming out of Wall Street were very negative. We'd be essentially, we'd turn the page into 2023 and we'd enter a recession immediately. Our view and what we talked about last year was that we thought the recession was pushed out and the market was oversold, which would allow it to basically have kind of this surprise relief rally when a recession doesn't occur. And so we think the recession continues to be pushed out, if you will, and there isn't a recession yet. And so the market has climbed this wall of worry in 2023. And then going back to election years, and you made uh, that comment of, of what people think, we went back to 1950 and looked at how election years performed relative to regular years. And they underperformed the average year, uh, but they are still positive where you have uh, kind of a flattish first half. And then as you identify who the candidates are, you get a little bit of a nervous movement in the third quarter. But then after the election, there's some a relief rally that actually drives the market higher and then into that first year of the presidential cycle. So I wouldn't overestimate any significant news headline from week to week. There's going to be a lot of them. I don't remember the headline from three weeks ago or nine weeks ago. It's more, uh, and and we'll have that again in 2024, just heavy headline driven, hard to know where the economy is going. So I'd take a step back and make sure you have a sound investment strategy and thought this through ahead of time uh, and, and built a portfolio contemplating your expectations, your risk and return levels, um, and really your overall risk tolerance. And I know you guys go over that with your clients um, week in and week out. So what are some of the major market indicators you're going to be looking at? going forward in the short term, maybe in the in for the next coming quarter, six months, nine months, that are going to help you drive your decision-making process in the portfolio build-outs for people? So a real blunt indicator is the interest rate regime, whether the Federal Reserve is raising or lowering interest rates. So we've just gone through about 18 months where the Fed was on a, an aggressive interest rate raising campaign bringing the, from the interest rates from essentially zero up to five and a half percent. Well, that's the major headwind for the markets. Cost of borrowing money is getting more expensive. And what they were trying to do was reduce inflation. So as they're raising those interest rates, they're trying to slow down the economy because the inflation genie got out of the bottle. And so they didn't want inflation, which is a general rise in prices, to keep going and have expectations for inflation get out of hand. They wanted to get that inflation down. Typically, the way you do that is slow down the economy, slow down demand, and get supply back into uh, alignment. And so we've seen inflation come back down. And it looks like to us that the Fed is done raising rates, and we expect them to start lowering rates in 2024. Now, uh, I don't know, uh, I or I should say, I think that Wall Street expectations are a bit aggressive. They think that the Fed will re, uh, reduce interest rates six times this year, a quarter point each time, so down one and a half percent. We would put the odds closer to maybe three interest rate cuts. And the reason they would cut is because they look at it as, well, we're already restrictive. If we get inflation back down to the 2% level, we don't want to be overly restrictive and really push us into a recession. And so I think that's what they're looking at. So if you have 
uh, Fed policy not being hostile to assets and the economy holding up. And I think that's the surprise to people that the economy has held up relatively well in the face of really raising interest rates and inflation. And the reason it's held up well is because the jobs market has been very strong. You've had unemployment below 5% and below 4% for an extended period of time, allowing kind of the consumer to navigate the inflation that we've uh, incurred. And I have one rule since I've really been doing this over 20 years. And you'd say uh, the one rule is never underestimate the US consumer. They are very resilient and they come uh, time and time again, that plays out where the consumer remains strong. And the consumer is important because they're 70% of the economy, GDP growth. Now, you mentioned you know inflation potentially going, or I'm sorry, interest rates potentially going down. You know, over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, a flee to money markets and and the safe, you know, the safe cash. Oh, we can get five percent of our cash. We don't want to be involved in the markets. Um, you know, what what are your feelings uh, on you know being too heavily invested in cash and uh, especially in a decreasing interest rate environment? The reason you build an investment portfolio is to preserve your purchasing power and grow that purchasing power over time. And so uh, saving in cash is really for short duration. It's not really an investment strategy that's going to preserve your purchasing power over time. So while you may think, and we talk about the volatility in the markets from week to week, month to month, day to day, uh, it's really inflation that can really eat away at your purchasing power more so than volatility. So volatility is a short-term risk. Inflation is the longer-term risk. And so if you're essentially moving into cash and staying in cash because you like that stability, now you're getting a little bit more interest than you had been previously. That's really a short-term. You've really made a trade-off between short-term and long-term, meaning you've reduced your short-term risk, but you've extended or increased your longer-term risk, which is the bigger risk. Historically, stocks have outperformed cash, cash equivalents on any one year, about 88% of the time. Uh, and you go out to 10 years, it's 100% of the time. There's something called the equity risk premium that Professor Jeremy Siegel out of the Wharton School has done a lot of research on, you know, hundred, couple hundred years of research that just says, uh, consistently, investors get on average a six to seven percent investment return above cash equivalents, depending uh, for a longer period of time. So, in other words, you're uh, you're missing out on a lot of gains that accrue over time. And so, the uh, cash equivalents and uh, money markets, even though they're yielding a little bit higher in interest, that's really that short term. They were really just matching about the average inflation over that time, so you weren't gaining anything. And now that they're reducing rates, remember what happened last time when they reduced rates. If your strategy was to save in CDs or bank savings accounts into up until 2007, you're earning maybe 5% close to what you might be now. All of a sudden you went to about zero to 1% for 10 years. And so that's that can happen where you have lower interest. And then what do you do? What if the market has moved even higher, started to rally because of those lower interest rates? Now you'd be buying in at a high. So I think it's important, regardless of the interest rate regime or the headlines, it's kind of a similar story that you want to put together an investment strategy that contemplates all those different risks. So that part of that strategy is going to uh, include what we call fixed income assets, which is, I guess, maybe one step above the, the money market CD type of programs. And if, as you're predicting, we see, and as many people are predicting, we start seeing interest rate cuts after 
last year or two years of really, I guess, a bond rally in that sense of interest rates going up, being able to secure higher interest returns. Um, what do you see the bond market doing if they do start cutting those rates? So this is an interesting situation where we've had what's called an inverted yield curve. Now, before you turn off, I'll explain what that is. <laughs> it's where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. And this is, this is normally if you put your money into a longer-term bond or CD or investment, you'd expect a higher interest rate. Well, right now, the 10-year treasury, the treasury is what the government issues to pay uh, its bills and so forth, can issue 10-year paper at 4% interest. So a 10-year investment bond is paying a treasury bond is, 10, is at 4%. You could invest in a three-month treasury, and that pays about 5.5%. So big difference, and it's been an extended period of time where you've had this inversion. So when we say that they're going to reduce interest rates, that's the Federal Reserve, that's the Central Bank of the U.S., uh, they decide to raise or lower the short-term interest rate, technically the federal funds rate, which is the rate that banks charge each other in the overnight market. It's normal for banks to say we have excess cash, another bank lent some money out and just has to keep regulatory reserves on hand. So this, this is a normal functioning market. It's not that uh, a problem with the banking system. So they determine those rates that you charge overnight. And then that really lends itself to what you charge, what the banks charge for loans to make sure that they can make money on their loans and having a net interest margin where the treasuries uh, are what the government issues at. So that longer duration is dependent on the marketplace. And what's unique about this environment in particular is this difference, which is, well, the Fed may lower interest rates, but the longer term rates may actually go higher. And so you ha really have to think this through in terms of we have a lot of debt. They're going to come out, and the more that they deficit spend, they're going to have to issue more and more treasury bonds out there. So you can really have two different types of bond markets where uh, short-term rates are reducing, longer-term rates are rising. And for bond investors in particular, uh, if interest rates are rising, bond prices are declining. So that can lead to losses in what you'd otherwise concern as your uh, kind of your conservative portion of the portfolio. But I think that lends to the benefit of what you're talking about with some of the fixed income instruments that you're talking about, Tom. So an inverted yield curve, as we've been taught for many, many years, typically is a, a signal or a sign of a coming recession. But what you're saying is, although there is an inverted yield curve currently, you the expectation is that those longer term rates are going to go higher, which will re-invert or I'm not sure the correct uninvert, <laughs> uninvert right? Uh, which which is maybe more of a sign that we're past a a recession or the fears or should be past the fears of a recession. Not necessarily. So I wouldn't give this signal as much credence because rates were held artificially low for a long period of time. You had COVID era policies going on, and then they had to raise rates. Uh, very quickly for the market to kind of keep up. So I think that signal was a little bit less this year. It is historically, you're correct, been almost 100% indicator of recession over the last nine recessions or whatever that you have this condition, which is true, uh, which is still a risk out there that we still have this condition and it can lead to uh, recession. That's why we don't take it off the table. We'd say there's probably about a 30% chance of recession at the back half of the year. Um, so that's non-trivial. That's not the base case, but that's still an elevated percent of recession since we only go into recession 
you know, eight to 12% of the time. And you have it a little bit higher now because of this inverted yield curve situation that's really signaling something's off with the kind of the duration and, and uh, matching of lib- assets and liabilities. Now, Mark, I would, I'll throw a curveball at you because you mentioned, you know, the the debt. And, you know, we all we all know that the, the U.S. government, a lot of their uh, their debts bought out by other countries. A couple of things that have kind of come across, you know, my readings are, you know, with the the development of the BRICS and the impact it could have on, you know, essentially uh, really hurting the U.S. dollar going forward. What's your thoughts on that? So the U.S. dollar is actually overvalued on a purchasing power parity basis. Um, and we'd expect the U.S. dollar to start to decline or depreciate in value. This is another reason why you'd have an investment portfolio, because the value of the dollar is ultimately going to, to decline. It has been declining. That's what inflation is, how much it declines uh, on a relative basis to other foreign currencies, but also uh, based on inflation are, are the cost of goods and services that go up or down, mostly up, of course. So meaning the dollar is going down in value. I do not think that they're a serious threat. The dollar still dominates in terms of global trade. The dollar is what's most wanted. Those countries don't even trust each other for the most part. But it's not to say that that's not needed because we're in a different type of world. And I think that's clear where you do have different trading relationships, partnerships. It used to be that oil was traded only in dollars and only settled in dollars. Now we see that trade not necessarily being settled in US dollars. I think what the difference is, is you have um, uh, the dollar and then you have some of these other forms of settlement, if you will. So maybe it's gold for oil, for example, in these different pairs, and maybe they just use a currency uh, because it makes it easier than obviously shipping gold from one spot to the other that's heavy and security and so forth and and so on. So I, I think that's going to be a continuing theme, but I wouldn't overplay the demise of the dollar. I think it's going to come down in terms of uh, purchasing power parity. Uh, and I think it's going to come down for a few years relative to other currencies. And again, that is actually supportive of investment assets. And so I think that, that just kind of gives you another reason to be an investor because that per- versus just staying in cash, for example, uh, because the purchase power of the dollar is going to uh, continue to depreciate. So I'll, I'm going to go off course just a slight bit since you mentioned gold. And maybe we can talk about gold, silver, and maybe commodities in general a little bit. Um, we've seen gold and silver hit highs uh, that they haven't reached in a long time. Uh, they seem to have stabilized. The gold has seemed to stabilize over the, over the $2,000 an ounce mark, silver over the $24 an ounce mark. Um, what do you see there? Uh, is that something people should be paying attention to, or is this just a blip in the market in there? Gold has been an excellent diversifier to traditional stocks and bonds. So when added to a portfolio, I do think it adds value. Uh, It marches to its own drummer. It can diversify both stocks and bonds, have its own kind of risk and return stream. Uh, And in this uh, environment in particular, we do see some of the foreign uh, central banks accumulating gold. So being buyers of gold, so whether that's Russia, China, whoever, adding to their gold reserves. So this is just a central bank adding to their reserves where uh, they do own US treasuries, but gold has been a little bit more popular. So I would say it might come back into favor 
especially if the dollar is declining, it is a beneficiary. Gold, for example, is a beneficiary historically if the dollar is uh, declining in terms of purchasing power. Uh, silver is just is similar. It's about three times as volatile as gold usually. So that's just a little different animal. It has more industrial use versus gold. Gold has a little bit more traditional statistics from an investment portfolio perspective. Uh, and I would separate that from something like uh, oil, for example, which is more economic related versus kind of financial related where gold would be. And oil, interestingly enough, is down in the 70s, despite yeah. kind of the escalation in um, global wars. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, we thought we'd be at 120 oil. And that was kind of the consensus. But we've seen that come all the way down. A lot of that has to do with the US producers and shale. So we say at the moment, uh, oil's kind of come down. Energy stocks have kind of been so-so. But that's a theme we'd go back to in the not too distant future once this kind of downturn is, has played out. Because we don't think the, the increase uh, is sustainable. And there's kind of been policies put in place to kind of keep production below where it could be. Right. So we talked about gold. We've talked about cash. Now the the routine or the ever popular keeping up with the Joneses, the S and P five hundred and the Dow. Right. Uh, everybody wants to chase those ticker symbols, uh, even though they say they they don't want to. Um, you know, human nature, the fear and the greed, the greed part. Uh, you know, we want those highs and the fear. We don't want those lows. So let's talk about. And this is really kind of been the the mantra for a couple of years, the overconcentration of performance of the S&P 500. What's your uh, hypothesis on that? So we've had a big run up in terms of the large mega cap stocks. And up until about 2001-ish, it's really been justified because their sales growth and earnings growth was growing in that magnitude. In this latest run up, after we had the decline in 2022, then the kind of the bounce back in 2023, uh, their sales and revenue growth as a percent of the overall kind of the S&P 500, for example, of those stocks did not keep up with the movement in the stock prices, meaning the stock prices went up and the sales growth really didn't uh, justify it necessarily. Granted, these are top tier companies and they're going to re remain relevant, but that concentration level in the top 10 stocks is now at a level we haven't seen in 50 years since basically the uh, the mid-70s. And after that point in time, you started to see their share decline relative to kind of the stocks that all got left out of the bit, uh, out of the rally of the mega cap stocks. So while those are important stocks, I think you'll find growth in other parts of the market to be uh, much better over time. And so this will be a slow process, uh, but it could, you know, play out over a number of years. And that's what gives us a little bit of positive view of the market, meaning there's a lot of stocks that just haven't participated in the overall rally and are, are really uh, below uh, are priced relatively below where they otherwise would be or have traded historically relative to the market because there has been so much concentration of capital uh, into those large, uh, large tech stocks. So you would say that maybe across the board for indices, right? There's really just kind of a pocket of a few that are carrying the load for everybody. So whether that's the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Russell, uh, any of those indices, really, we're just seeing very few performers and the rest are just riding the coattails. Would that be a fair assessment? 
Definitely. So I think most of last year, it was really those top 10 stocks were almost 90% of the entire return. Um, so the other stocks really weren't pulling their weight or participating. It was just in those top stocks. And so that can happen from time to time. It just happens to be that we've seen these just grow and grow and grow um, and really dominate the marketplace. So that's a pretty rare event when that happens. And the flip side is that it's been growing, you know, ha occurring for a number of years as they've been growing more and more in concentration. But there is a flip side I mentioned. We haven't seen this level of concentration in the top 10 since the uh, the mid 70s. And after that time, you started to see the rally broaden out and those stocks didn't, just didn't have the same uh, same pace of growth as the, as other stocks in the market did. Which is a great reason why you, as a chief investment officer, at Brookstone preach diversity, right? Based on the academic principles, be diverse, not just having an S&P 500 and a couple bonds in the Dow, um, but whether it's low vol, emerging markets, really kind of having that uh, widespread net. Well, definitely. So the market uh, indexes, when we're talking about concentration, are market cap weighted, meaning the largest stocks represent the largest percent of that index. And right now we're looking at really an approach that says, why not an equal weighted approach to all those stocks? So maybe the stocks are, you have a stock basket, why not equal weight those stocks? So if you have a hundred stocks, that's 1% in each of those stocks, a basket of 30 stocks, it's three and a third percent in there. Meaning you don't concentrate in any individual stock. You really broadly allow these different stocks to participate. And historically, that has actually outperformed the market cap weighted stocks. And I think we're in that trend, right at the beginning of that transition phase where the market cap concentration was outperforming to now going back to where those equal weighted approaches uh, and that more diversification starts to uh, show some benefits for clients. Do you feel that that diversification and and with in combination with interest rates and and other considerations, uh, where does that fall? Let's say for the dividend yields from stocks and the income maybe that people are trying to to get from the from those types of investments. Sure, dividend strategies and dividend stocks are very underappreciated. I, I like to say, especially for real world investors, right, and not just theoretical or academic research, dividend stocks pay dividends or cash flow to investors, regardless of the environment. In other words, no matter if the stock's going up or down, if they're a good company, they'll pay out the dividends. So you get, as a share owner, you get a share of the profits. And right now, those yields, and, the, and just a point on dividends, dividends are determined by the board of directors of the company. They're not determined by the market. Uh, and so that board of directors determines the dividend payout. Usually they determine for a year. And then the following year, they decide for the best dividend companies, whether to raise that dividend in dollar terms to shareholders or not. And some of the best dividend companies have paid for 40, 50 consecutive years, rising dividends to their investors, meaning they make a profit, they make more the next year, they're sharing more in dollar terms. That can really add up when you say your income coming from the stock that you own is rising at a rate faster than inflation. So you're getting raises at about double, historically it's been about double the pace inflation or what typically you would get if you were an employee, for example. That's one of the benefits of being an investor that your cash flow can increase organically over time. And so you get the two components, both the cash flow component from uh, stock ownership and then the potential for price appreciation of the stock. Um, and so I think right now you're getting about 
a 4% to 5% in a good, solid, high-quality dividend strategy. Uh, and I think that's pretty attractive in today's world. And when you think about that and why I said the the good dividend companies raise their dividends, well, the dollar amount coming out next year could be more and the year after more and more and more. So these high-quality companies that you, you think they're brand names, but people sometimes tend to underappreciate what they do for shareholders be, uh, because they're somewhat boring at this point, but they make quality products, products we all use on a, a regular basis and just have a repeatable business model. But it'll never be in, they're never really in the news other than occasionally because they, they don't have the hot product or the hot tech because that's not the type of companies they are. But they can definitely play a role both from capital appreciation perspective and also importantly in today's world, a cash flow perspective and growth of that cash flow over time. Now, you, we talked about uh, the S&P 500. We talked about some dividends. Um, and I just really want to spend a, a couple minutes on some of the alternative type of uh, nuance investments that you guys have really rolled out that have really brought value to our portfolios. I mean, mainly, especially with the, the interest rate risk in 2022 is, you know, the buffered ETFs and then a long, a long hold with you guys, the structured note. That's exactly the question I just wrote down. Seriously, <laughs> I, I was just going to ask the exact same thing. Well, I'll, I'll take buffered ETFs first. <laughs> All right. Offered ETFs are exchange traded funds. So they trade all day like a stock, but have a certain strategy in them. And so we've used a lot of ETFs because they've been an investment vehicle that's lowered cost to be an investor and also expanded the opportunity. So there's some interesting and innovative investment uh, strategies inside an ETF. Well, buffered ETFs allow you to have participation in the S&P 500 or whichever index that you have up to a certain cap over a one-year period, but then they also buffer the certain percent of the downside, meaning you don't absorb a loss until you exceed that buffer level. So they come in a couple of different flavors. One has, it buffers the first 9% of the loss. Another version buffers the first 15% of the loss. And then another one does a negative five to a negative 35%, meaning you get the first five, but then you're really hedged for the next 30%. That provides a pretty good layer of protection, but then also provides upside participation. Right now we're seeing what we call caps in the 12, 14, 16% range. And you know this going in ahead of time. And us as investment advisors determine, well, is that a good trade-off? Is that reasonable? And to us, that upside cap is very reasonable for the level of downside protection that you get. So what this is doing is actually allowing you to participate in the equity markets at a lower volatility level. So this makes a lot of sense that we found a lot of fits. And this is a good point where we spent a couple of years monitoring these investment vehicles, making sure they were doing what they proposed that they were going to do uh, and worked in real time. Uh, they were stress tested in 2020 with COVID pandemic and extreme market conditions and worked just as we expected. So we were very, uh, gained a lot of confidence over that time period and then started to implement them more and more broadly. Uh, and then the uh, the other component is structured notes. So structured notes are a financial instrument issued by the capital markets desk of some of these large major banks. So a lot of investors really haven't had a participation in these or even heard of these necessarily. But we go out and we negotiate with the capital markets desks of the banks. So whether that's uh, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, they all have these desks in New York, but they package these investments and then send them out um, to the financial community. We negotiate a custom note that we call a flash note. It's an income-based note 
that has consistent terms. And we do this every month and we go out to each of the different houses and they bid on uh, the terms. So you look at who the issuer is, what the term is, uh, since it's a note, the term is a one-year note. What's your payment proposition? So this comes in the form of a coupon. Typically, we've seen coupons in the 8 to 12% range. Some have been higher than that uh, during certain periods, but it's above average coupon is the point. And each month it can uh, differ, but again, you know ahead of time. And then uh, fourth, what's the downside protection levels? What's the trade-off? It's a note. It's not a bond. It's a structured investment vehicle. Um, and what they say is your principal is guaranteed to be repaid at uh, par value up to a 30% decline in any one of three indexes. So the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Russell. So common indexes. In other words, you know your layers of protection. So they're pretty pretty good. That 30% decline is uh, pretty steep. So these are very unique. Uh, and what we do is build a strategy around that where you just don't own one note for one year. You'd say, well, I have a sleeve of my portfolio, 10, 20%, whatever is the appropriate percent. And then I ladder these notes. So I'd put a percent in January, February, March, and then you each note has its own unique 12 month series. And then you get uh, the average of the income payments uh, and they pay out on a monthly basis. So it's really a unique uh, strategy to add to a portfolio with those layers of protection and that above average coupon. So John and I have used these for a long time through Brookstone and, and as have many of the Brookstone advisors around the country. Now, I think one of the more unique things that you guys are offering is a more of a uh, kind of like an ETF of uh, structured notes now, something where as opposed to just having an individual issue, we're, there's a pool that people or investors can get get into. How how is that different than just getting the individual and, and what's what do you see the benefit of that? Well, I think the main benefit is we put that strategy around that and made it easy to allocate to and kind of automated that system. Whereas before it was a little bit more of a manual process for sure. The notes would come out every month when we negotiated them, we'd let investors know. Uh, and then by hand, you kind of have to look at, okay, I have the X percent of the portfolio I want to put in this note. Here, we've allowed it to automate that situation where you'd say, okay, I want to ladder over the next six months and here's how we're going to ladder it. And then once something matures, we'd reinvest that automatically for you and, and sweep in the cash. And so you have a little bit higher uh, allocation next. So I think it just put it into a real advisor and investment friendly uh, sleeve of the portfolio, if you will. And we don't see this across the board in other RIAs or brokerage houses, or this is just, this is not something that's common in the investment world. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would definitely agree with that. I think we spent a lot of time kind of researching this and the application. In fact, we wrote a uh, an industry leading white paper on this a number of years ago. And the reason we did was because we couldn't find it in the industry. We heard all these couple of comments about this or that, but no one really put it together in the kind of the advisory world of how you use these notes, what are the pros and cons? Like any investment, you weigh the trade-offs, what are the pros, the cons, and determine what the appropriate allocation is for the different types of clients. Well, we saw this is no different, but we saw a great lack of information available. And so we tried to put this together so that it would be, here's kind of a, a reference piece behind this. Uh, and here's our experience with these. And we've been doing these every month for the last eight years. And so we have great data. And as you're mentioning, we think we have, uh, or at least uh, I'll add on to what you're mentioning. We think we have the best data around this uh, investment structure because we've been doing it so long with live 
dollars. Um, and, and we also negotiate and think we get the best terms because we're one of the largest, if not the largest buyer uh, in the marketplace. These alternative investments have made a huge difference in, in our clients, both in 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 positive and uh, downturns, because how many of these notes have actually triggered? I, I mean, I've had we've had these, I think we're going on seven, eight years, Tommy, probably investing in these. How many notes just in the last five years have actually triggered? I would say less than a handful. Um, that's yeah. about the <laughs> that's about the correct number. And so we expect uh, them to, you know, occasionally the market drops below thirty percent. But all that happens is you continue to get your coupon and then you get the value, whatever the end of the note is. And so if you ladder it and you mentioned just a handful, yeah, it it can happen. But going back to really your 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 comment, John, on you know, good and bad markets in twenty twenty two, both stocks and bonds declined double digits. Well, a ladder of these notes were not really impacted by the raise in rise in interest rates, which created the decline in bond values, and then also created a, a bear market in stocks dropping uh, over 20% during the, the year. Uh, these kept paying their coupon, and then you had that 30% barrier before it got breached. So, so it provided its own risk and return stream uh, laddered over that time period. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, that 30% downside is a, is a big number to have to fall through. Uh, at any given point in time, and and as you've uh, stressed here, you don't put them all in just one in one note. You don't put all your money in one note. You're putting it. You could have you know if you're doing it over a year's time, you could actually have twelve different anniversaries. Definitely. So there's a lot of flexibility in how you apply these notes as well during different market environments. And so this is also one of the areas where we see if we see a lot of volatility in markets or if the market's declining, you actually get a bigger coupon. Uh, and so this is the first area we look to for opportunity when we see a declining market. What's the coupon? Because <laughs> during COVID, you saw you were well into the teens for the coupon over a one-year period. And I think that becomes that makes declines look a lot different when you're looking for opportunities to take advantage of during market declines than just being worried about that the right. market's declining because of a various either narrative or what happens uh, externally to the marketplace when you're saying, I'm an investor, now I'm looking for opportunities. The market presents some at differing time periods. Yeah, those 13, 14, 15% interest uh, numbers were nice to be able to throw around in a, like you were saying, you know, when everybody else was at a zero or a one, or we had a downturn in the marketplace. So being able to say we got that for a client was was great. Definitely. And again, it goes, you know, you, you've said a lot, It you know, investing, especially in retirement, it's not about a one, three or five year return. It's, it's a 20, 30 year time horizon. And, you know, the, the core satellite approach, diversification, having these notes, having these buffered ETFs, you know, we're not trying to reach the peaks. We're trying to avoid the valleys and we're trying to just kind of ride that the middle of that wave. And, you know, that's the big thing, because when you're invested in the market and you have a team like we have with Brookstone, we're getting opportunities uh, in, in the down markets. And, and not only that, not only do we have the opportunities, but we haven't lost our butts like a lot of the people that are just chasing those S&P 500 returns. Uh, you know, so those opportunities have a little bit more power behind them. Yeah, you're going to you're going to make more money by limiting your downside uh, than like you're saying john than trying to capture the the ultimate highs of the market because 
when you're trying to capture that, you're also capturing the the worst of the lows too. Uh, and so trying to even at that curve, so to speak, in the long term, people are going to end up with more money in their pocket. Yeah. Well, folks, that was the chief investment officer, the smartest and funniest guy in the room, Mark Diorio. Um, you know, Mark, uh, I, I know I can speak definitely on Tommy's behalf as we're uh, you know, lifers of Brookstone Capital Management. There's not a there's not a investment firm out there that could pry us away from, you know, the the company that you know Dean and Derek and you and Daryl have all, you know, been behind. And we thank you for all your your thoughtfulness and and really the the clients putting the clients first and uh, caring about our clients. So we thank you for all your hard work. And, uh, you know, we're definitely appreciative of it. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate being here and uh, would love to join you again sometime. Well, yeah. you're always welcome here, Mark. You know that. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have to start getting you on uh, right at the, the end of the second quarter, you know, when things <laughs> always get fun, maybe September, October, when uh, people love the markets. <laughs> so Fair enough. Maybe, and then you can make your presidential predictions. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, folks, that was the chief investment officer of Brookstone Capital Management, Mark Diorio. We thank uh, Mark again for everything. And uh, he's, as I said in the beginning, he's uh, part one of two investment or uh, industry stars that we're starting the year off. So thanks again, Mark. And uh, we will uh, be in touch with everyone here in a couple weeks with our second star so until then folks we want you to just uh stay warm if you're on the east coast if you're on the west coast well we are warm and uh enjoy your retirement folks take care it's easy to get in touch with john and thomas if you're more on the west coast give john a call at 858-935-6210 that's 858-935-6210 or go online to gosecurus.com. That's gosecurus.com. If you're more of an East Coaster, then call Thomas, 973-394-0623. That's 973-394-0623 and online at internationalfinancial.com. That's internationalfinancial.com. And you can, of course, always just check the description or the show notes section of today's show for all that contact information. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting apps, and we'll see you next time on the Retire Happy Podcast. Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC, BCM, a registered investment advisor. BCM, Securus Financial, and International Financial Advisory Group are independent of each other. Insurance products and services are not offered through BCM, but are offered and sold through individually licensed and appointed agents. The opinions expressed by John Iamarino, Thomas O'Connell, and guests on this show are their own and are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Any strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Before acting on any information mentioned, please consult with a qualified tax or investment advisor to determine if it is suitable for your specific situation. This program is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subjects covered. Registered investment advisors and investment advisor representatives act as fiduciaries for all of our investment management clients. We have an obligation to act in the best 
best interests of our clients and to make full disclosure of any conflicts of interest, if any exist. Please refer to our firm brochure, the ADV2A Item 4, for additional information. Structured notes involve risks not associated with an investment in ordinary debt securities. The securities are not bank deposits and are not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or any other governmental agency, nor are they obligations of or guaranteed by a bank. The securities will not be listed on any securities exchange, and secondary trading may be limited. Therefore, there may be little or no secondary market for the securities. Accordingly, you should be willing to hold your securities to maturity. The securities are subject to the credit risk of the issuing bank, and any actual or anticipated changes to its credit ratings or credit spreads may adversely affect the market value of the securities.